Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways Podcast. We're so glad that you are joining us. Uh, this is episode 75. Uh, we're recording this Sunday, May 17th, 2020, 3 p.m. Pacific Time. I am your host, Terry Plucknett. As always, joining me are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Todd, how's it going today? Oh, uh, dandy. I'm actually watching Georgia versus Boise State from 2011 right now, so. And doing this podcast. Nice. I, I spent the first part of my afternoon watching uh, the first live sports that have been on in a while, and I watched the uh, the skins match between Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, uh, Ricky Fowler, and Matthew Wolf. That's if you're not it was counting weird. the Korean baseball has been playing at 2 a.m. every day. True, true. It was really weird. They were wearing shorts and carrying their own bags. Nice. <laughs> Zach, how you doing? I'm doing well. You know, this is the 75th podcast episode, which I think is hilarious because it took us to do like two years to get to 50, and now we've done like 25 in eight weeks, it feels like. We have definitely <laughs> accelerated our output. So, you know, the coronavirus really generates just a buzz of creativity. Uh, yeah, or boredom. I mean, however you want to look at it. I mean, I remember we were talking about episode 49 and we were making jokes about Super Bowl 49 and that was like Christmas. So we've put out a crap ton since then. Uh, yes, we have. We have. And and I, yes, it has been boredom driven. I mean, we we, uh, we found some random movie from 50 years ago last week and, and talked about it for a half hour. So uh, I, I think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, Zach, what are you drinking today? I'm drinking out of Chico, California, Grass Valley. Uh, we got some Sierra Nevada Pale Ale for all my Northern California friends out there. This stuff is pretty fabulous. Only way to go, right? Exactly. Out of a can. Yep. There you go. Todd, what do you got? Uh, yesterday I bought this bottle of Old Crow bourbon whiskey and uh i bought it just because of the time splitters character mad old crow you know <laughs> see you in the future suckers <laughs> so yeah it's pretty good it's, it was cheap but it's good time splitters references that's just beautiful beautiful literally the only reason i bought that bottle. <laughs> uh well i'm drinking uh i've got a i've got another tall boy here this is uh so uh, as you know, things have been shut down and hard to find. Uh, whenever my wife has an opportunity to find a unique beer at the store, she picks it up for me and says, this is a podcast beer. And so it sits there so I can drink it on a podcast. So this one, I mean, when she saw the title, she had to get it. This is out of Booming Rollers Brewery. I think it's in San Diego. This beer is called their Modern Times Double IPA. Nice. Yeah. I like yeah. it. So I, I had to. I had to. So yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And uh, and if I if I need any more, I've got a pub beer here just to, as a backup. So so then, so yeah. All right. Well, uh, again, thanks so much for uh, for listening. Um, 
subscribe rate review we're uh, on itunes find us all over the internet almostsideways.com you can keep up with what we've been uh what we've been watching there um you can find us on twitter on facebook we're also on spotify if you want to find our podcast there uh we are doing a dive today of uh, a personal favorite of a couple of uh 25 years of this film but first we're going to talk about uh what we've been watching and uh the last couple weeks this has always started off with uh looking at the last dance uh we're recording this on sunday afternoon todd this is this is the supersonics episode do you have any uh any any hot takes on uh on the last dance well it's sort of believed around these parts that uh you know if peyton had guarded MJ the entire series that uh, we would have had a really good chance of winning that series and I find it funny that Jordan like has to do like the biggest fake belly laugh just like at the thought that Peyton might have actually had a couple of decent games guarding him I mean it's it's so it's so fake at this point but I mean hey I it is what it is I got my Sonics on TV that's cool <laughs> yeah I would say that is definitely the the most fabricated moment of this entire series so far is is the fact that yeah Peyton was able to shut down Jordan for two games not just two games wasn't it two games in Chicago? Well, wait, no, no, or was it in Seattle? No, Those think, were games. It was the two games in Seattle. Yeah, games uh, four, four and, and five, five in Seattle. Four after they had a three. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, okay, right, right. That's what it was. But yeah, he actually shut him down for two games, and and Peyton, I mean Peyton is possibly the best defender of the 90s i think that's safe to say uh, at least on ball defender and uh and for jordan to just laugh it off and then claim that it's uh that he had other things on his mind and then them trying to say oh he just wanted to win the championship on father's day that's why they lost i mean that's what really what it made it feel like it's like seriously that's what you're gonna you're gonna chalk this up to the fact that that he just wanted to win on Father's Day, so he purposefully lost two games and let Peyton have his moment and shut him down for two games. I thought that was just that was ridiculous. That was the most fabricated moment of the whole. Oh yeah, thing. and he's like throwing George Carl under the bus because he didn't say hi to him at a restaurant. I mean, like, <laughs> come on. Well, that's the, I, I I thought that was kind of funny. Of just the competitor doesn't can can find his motivation from anything. Well, yeah, he he made up a story in his head for poor LeBradford Smith or whatever, like, had, had like, a big game, and he's like, oh, screw this rookie, he just had a good game against us, I'm gonna make up some shit so I can have a good game next time. Like, well, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Nice game, nice game, Mike. Isn't that what, uh... What, what he didn't say? Yeah. What he didn't say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what a slight, just saying nice game, Mike. Okay. Yeah. They lost. They even lost the game. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Zach, do you hold any uh, any weight to the fact that uh, if the player strike hadn't happened in 94 with baseball, that Michael Jordan would have stayed a baseball player? Well, I don't know. I was very intrigued by the baseball components. First of all, did either of you guys know that Tony, Terry Francona was his manager? I didn't know that. I did that, not know that until one That time. was crazy. I, had re- I remembered hearing that at one point, but I had completely forgotten. Well... I, I mean, um, and I think the, the show makes a pretty good point that he was like an underrated baseball player. And, you know, didn't he start out with that 10-game hitting streak or something? But, you know, eventually mm-hmm. pitchers figured him out. But, uh, yeah, you know, that nice appearance by Tito, I got to say. I also think it's... I thought it was really funny that the only reason he was in A to start with was because they were the highest level or the lowest level that could handle the media. 
that was going to be following him. <laughs> yeah, I'm now. I'm I'm curious about like when they wrote Space Jam now, because like there's yeah. a lot of that that has to like mirror what was actually going on with it. I mean, obviously he shot it between when he came back and when and the next season. I thought that the footage of them like at the at like the how the movie studio built him a, a court and then he had like a bunch of NBA players around. I was like, you already had Larry Johnson there and Sean Bradley. I mean, and then he ends up getting a whole bunch of more people coming anyway. That's and Muggsy cool. Bogues. Yeah, and Muggsy and Patrick and Charles, but he yeah. didn't even say and Charles Larry. is there. And Bill Murray. Don't forget him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was intrigued by the Space Jam scenes as well. I thought that stuff was really kind of cutting edge. Why don't they talk more about how, like, Space Jam as a cinematic milestone was, you know, like, the first time you really saw green screen used like that. Like, that shit looked like it was out of Game of Thrones or something, or Lord of the Rings. Like, that was pretty impressive for 1996 or 5. Yeah, it was. It was. To put to put him in the cartoon like that, you don't, I mean, outside of what? Who Framed Roger Rabbit? You hadn't really seen that at all. Yeah, but, I mean, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was, like, the other way around, though. That wasn't in an animated world. That's true. That's true. All right, well, uh, the the end of The Last Dance is coming up. Like I said, you'll probably have already seen it by the time you uh, you guys hear this. So, watching this series, I, uh, it's I been... just have one more question. Okay, watching this series, yeah. a- after eight episodes, do you think that Jordan was a greater basketball player than you thought going in, or not as great? Um, I, don't I would know if it's say. Changed for me. Yeah, I I was thinking the same thing. It, it's been a. I think it's been what it's intended to be, where it's reminding the young or it's letting the younger generations know how great he was, and people like in our generation who grew up with Michael Jordan reminding us how great he was. Do you think two? Do you think nineteen ninety five MJ is as dominant in twenty twenty, without the coronavirus? Like could he could he dominate yeah. today's yeah, NBA? Yeah, could he with, win seventy two games and you know? Well, with the game with his game, I don't think so. He would need to have gotten a more consistent three point shot, but which um he probably would have. But if you take that player exactly and put it in our game now, I don't I don't know. Well, you could say that that was kind of the way he played was a result of the system he played in too. There's no way the triangle works in twenty twenty. <laughs> right. It, it's it's not setting up three point shooters. That's all. That's all the NBA is right now. Yeah. Three point shooters and uh, and guys getting fouled to go into the basket. Yeah. Well, no, James Harden getting fouled going. To yeah, the basket. I was thinking. I mean, I don't know if he would be as dominant today. In part because the game has changed so much. I mean, just look at some of those box scores from some of the you know the Hornet series games that they showed, like seventy four seventy one. Like that is very clearly a very old school NBA style of play that kind of died out with the Spurs and the Pistons. And another thing about that era is that was also the era of, of a lot of expansion teams like the Grizzlies and like the Raptors. So the league expanded, the talent pool got a little thinner, and Jordan was able to dominate. Can you just imagine how pissed Michael Jordan would be having to guard James Harden with his double shuffled step back three? Like, like he, he, he would be kicked out of almost every game because he'd be yelling at the refs so much. That, I mean... I mean, he he punched yeah. his teammate in in in, in practice because uh, 
he was yeah. getting like lame calls. I mean, yeah, <laughs> he would definitely start a brawl and throw on the court. <laughs> I I wish there yeah. had been footage of the Kerr Jordan fist fight. That would have been spectacular. I I really wanted that in the series. I love that. I was like, I just hit the smallest guy on the team. <laughs> I was just going to also say, if any player's game translated well based on watching the series, I feel like Tony Kukoc could have dominated in 2020. That guy was ahead of his time. Yeah, he he was like the precursor to Dirk for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, yeah, last dance finishing up uh, tonight, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about those last two episodes next week for sure. All right, well, we're going to start off by looking at what we've been watching and then uh, and then go from there. So, uh, Zach, I'm going to go into you first. What have you been watching last All week? All right, well, this week I explored the TCM app a little bit. I know Terry is a fan of TCM. I am as well. Yes. Um, I don't watch so much live TCM, but I do like their app. And I was checking out some movies uh, that uh, had maybe big names to them, but I never heard of them before. The first one I checked out is a movie from 1985 called Marie, starring Sissy Spacek and Jeff Daniels and uh, Morgan Freeman. And it tells the true story of a woman named Marie uh, Regani, and she lives in Tennessee in the 1970s, and she, at the beginning of the movie, she's in this abusive relationship. She gets out of it. She kind of um, wills herself to getting a college degree, and it is basically appointed um, the head of the parole board in this somewhat corrupt Democratic governor of, of Tennessee's administration. And so as the movie goes along, she realizes how corrupt this administration is and she has to kind of reconcile, does she play ball with them or does she stand up for what is right and calling out the corruption and the bureaucracy? Um, The movie's kind of like, it's definitely on the heels of like Silkwood and Norma Rae, you know, female empowerment, but also a woman uh, kind of thrust into this role in a man's world where she has to call out uh, corruption when she sees it. There's also a little bit of the insider in it too. So it's like the, I think it's like the insider meets Norma Ray. Um, Sissy Spacek is really good in this movie. Uh, I don't know why this movie got like got all, virtually no recognition whatsoever. I, I feel like this is a, a sort of a perfect metaphor in uh, for for eighties politics in, in in a way, and it's pretty entertaining. There's also a nice kind of uh, a role by Fred Thompson at the end of the movie where he plays himself as her lawyer, um, defending her in court against the corrupt uh, uh, Tennessee governor. Um, it's a really good movie. I give it three stars. I think it's uh, underrated. I don't know what happened with the with the campaign or marketing for it, but uh, definitely a t- sort of prototypical sissy SpaceX movie from the 1980s. Worth checking out. Uh, the other movie I watched, which had some big names to it on TCM, um, is a movie from 1958 called Wind Across the Everglades. And this is a movie that's directed by Nicholas Ray. Nicholas Ray is probably most famous for uh, Rebel Without a Cause and Johnny Guitar and Bigger Than Life and a few other 50s movies. Um, I've never been a huge fan of Nicholas Ray. I've always found his movies to be sort of corny and they don't necessarily age well. But I was intrigued by this movie because according to Ben Mankiewicz in his introduction to this movie, um, Nicholas Ray and his leading man, Christopher Plummer, uh, did not get along at all. In fact, Ray hated Christopher Plummer so much that he refused to direct the scenes with him in it. And I'm thinking, like, Christopher Plummer, like, he seems, like, so friendly. Why would anyone have anything bad to say about Christopher Plummer? So, um, and, and Mankiewicz speculates that it was more Nicholas Ray's problem and not so much um, Christopher Plummer. But anyway, this is this is a good early appearance by Christopher Plummer, if you're curious to see what he looked like before he was 70 years old, um, other in a movie other than The Sound of Music. 
Um, this movie also has Burl Ives in it, and he plays a... a so, so the story is set in the Florida Everglades in 1890, and uh, Christopher Plummer plays this ba- basically all, like an environmentalist um, who goes down there to protect these birds that are uh, getting shot by these like rednecks, and this band of rednecks is led by Burl Ives, who plays a character known as Cottonmouth. Um, Burl Ives, you probably know from uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And so it's sort of like a, a, a tete-a-tete, um, man who shot Liberty Balance type thing where, you know, the guy from the city, Christopher Plummer, goes against this yokel cottonmouth who has a cottonmouth snake around him. This is a ridiculous movie. It is very, very corny. It's totally Nicholas Ray kind of stuff. Um, I'm more intrigued by the backstory than anything else. It was not a great movie watching experience unless you want, like, real 50s schlock. I was intrigued by the idea of, like, a, a movie about environmentalism in the 1950s, so that I... I I liked that, but the movie didn't really deliver. It was much more kind of standard, and it was very, very, very corny, hokey dialogue. So I give it like one and a half stars, sadly. But it is really fun to think about Nicholas Ray refusing to direct Christopher Plummer because he hates him so much. That is uh, the kind of story I want to see. That's pretty great. Christopher Plummer, what's so? How could anyone not like him? He seems so friendly. Uh, I have not watched either of those. Have you, Todd? I have not heard of either. I hadn't either. Okay. That's what the TCM app is there for. These movies. Kind of, with, that's what TCM's all about. Exactly. Right there, yeah. You're under a thousand votes on IMDb. <laughs> hey, you know what? I wasn't going to mention that, but you know, we can just drop that a little bit. I am getting. I am preparing for something that we may talk about next week. So, yeah, get out those uh, little scene movies. I'm, I'm excited. Neither of these would make the list, though. All right, all right. Well, I'm going to go next because uh, the main things I'm going to be talking about were uh, were TCM watches also. Nice. Um, but I've got a few things to uh, to mention first. Uh, first, uh, I'm my uh, weekly Breaking Bad update. I uh, I finished season four yesterday, and man, what that the last like four episodes of that season are just insane. Um, just watching. You know, Walter just kind of freaking out and spiraling out of control as he tries to find a way out of this mess. And uh, the level of manipulation he's willing to go through to do it is pretty insane. And uh, and, and but it, it's what's needed to uh, to do what he ends up doing. So I don't want to give any spoilers if anyone hasn't seen it that's listening, but. My word, the end of that, the end of that season is awesome. And I, I, I can't wait to see where season five takes it from here because I mean, it almost feels like that, that could have been some sort of an, like a final ending, but where, where is it going to go now? So that's where I'm at. End of season four, about to watch season five. Yeah. There's a lot of immediate uh, aftermath of that episode that, uh, yes. that plays out. So, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, before I get to the, the movies, oh no, that was another, the other one I was going to talk about. Another TV show that, uh, actually started last night, uh, this weekend on Hulu, uh, uh, debuted a brand new show called The Great. Um, this, uh, and I watched the first episode last night and it's pretty good. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, this is a show starring Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt. Um, it is created by the Oscar-nominated co-writer of The Favorite, and it is a very similar vibe as uh, 
as Elle Fanning plays who ends up becoming Catherine the Great, the ruler of Russia. Um, and so she's this rural Austrian girl who marries uh, the emperor of Russia and uh, kind of works her way to the top. Um, Nicholas Holt plays uh, plays Peter, the emperor of Russia. It's it's really interesting. Um, the, the pilot was a lot of fun. Uh, it's got a very similar vibe to The Favorite. Um, and I'm curious to see if that vibe can last for a 10 episode season or if it gets old and um and you start to lose interest as it goes along but uh, it was a good first episode it was a good watch l fanning's amazing nicholas holt is ridiculous um uh worth checking out the great on hulu uh so now let's get into uh the tcm stuff i was going to talk about before i get to the i watched two movies before I get to that, though, I want to give a shout-out to a new podcast from TCM called The Plot Thickens. That's out right now. Uh, the first season of it is, uh, they're in the middle of it, uh, Ben Mankiewicz hosts, and he is walking through the career of Peter Bogdanovich uh, through a series of interviews he had with him. And Peter Bogdanovich is such an interesting dude and has so many interesting stories and interesting connections. And Ben Mankiewicz, I find, is one of the more engaging people in Hollywood to listen to. So it's a great, uh, great combination, uh, worth checking out. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't, uh, listened to that, the most recent episode talks about some of the flops he had following the last picture show. And, uh, it, the episode is entitled something that a producer told him once that is, uh, Babe Ruth just bunted. That's what, uh, a producer told him about, uh, some of the flops that he had. So that's worth looking at. Okay. I watched two TCM movies that I'd recorded a couple weeks ago. Um, one thing that I that is ironic that I'm drinking the Modern Times beer is I watched two silent films from the other two titans of silent uh, comedy from the era, and that is Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton. So it started with I watched the 1923 movie Safety Last with Harold Lloyd. Um, it was the first Harold Lloyd movie I had ever seen, and he's this bizarre combination of Chaplin and Keaton I feel where he's got the the slapstick of um and the just the facial reactions that you get from a Chaplin movie but he also has the physicality and the insane stunts that Keaton pulls off as well um this movie is most known for the uh the famous shot the famous stunt of Harold Lloyd hanging from a clock above a at the top of a building that's like falling off of its hinges um so that's like how it's got its notoriety it's a decent movie um but uh Harold Lloyd it, he's watching him he was a silent star but he feels like he feels very modern like he has a very modern look to him like I could see him being in a modern movie but uh I'm giving this movie three and a half stars. It's fun. It's fun to watch. It's a story of a of a small town boy goes to the big city, tries to make a name for himself, which ends up getting him climbing a building <laughs> and hanging from a clock uh, as he tries to earn some money. Um, a lot of hijinks, like a like any typical uh, silent comedy. So uh, definitely worth watching if you haven't seen that one. The second movie I watched is also most known for a famous stunt, and that was Steamboat Bill Jr., and this one is starring Buster Keaton. This came in, out in 1928, and Steamboat Bill Jr. Um, is a story of uh, an old uh, 
an old crusty steamboat captain who's about to be put out of business by the new steamboat in town. When his son shows up, uh, his long-lost son that he hasn't seen since he was a baby, who's played by Buster Keaton, so he's Steamboat Bill Jr., and he's not really what the dad was hoping for, but he somehow saves him and saves the saves the family business. Um, this uh, this movie is most known for um, a uh, like a hurricane scene that comes through town, and half of a house falls off onto Buster Keaton, who is saved by standing in the window. Um, and the whole house kind of falls over the top of him, which was an actual practical stunt that they did. And apparently there was only like a couple inches of clearance of his head for this stunt to actually work. Um, could have easily killed him, but so glad it didn't because Buster Keaton's awesome. This movie's awesome. Three and a half stars as well. Um, some of the stuff that they're able to pull off in these, just knowing that they're all practical stunts and nothing, nothing graphical done. Is pretty amazing. So, uh, so yeah, two great silent movies. If you haven't caught them, uh, try and find them so you can check them out. Have either of you seen either of these? I've seen both. Ah, uh, did you like them, Zach? Of course, they're classic. Uh, you know, Buster Keaton is one of the most famous Kansans uh, out of Pequot, Kansas. Every year, there's the Buster Keaton <laughs> Festival in Iola, Southeast Kansas. Not not a whole lot going on there, except if you're a Buster Keaton aficionado. Steamboat Bill Jr. is one of, I think, his his best films. Uh, I I would absolutely agree with that. I, I've seen two ste- uh, two Buster Keaton movies, Steamboat Bill Jr. and The General, and they're both awesome. And The General is filmed in Oregon, so there is a connection. Right. There. The one to the one to watch. Uh, my favorite Buster Keaton movies are Hospitality, which has some crazy, crazy set pieces as well, but also has a good story. You know, one of the one of the criticisms of Keaton, he was never able to maybe generate the pathos that Charlie Chaplin has, but in uh, in uh, Our Hospitality, he is that is the one to check out if you're interested in a good story to go along with a Buster Keaton feature. What well, wasn't he called like old stone face? Cause he just kind of always had a similar look to him. That sounds right. I'll go with that. <laughs> old stone face. I, I, I feel like I heard that somewhere, but yeah. Um, and, and Harold Lloyd, I, I, I was impressed by, by Harold Lloyd too. Would you agree that he's kind of a combo of the two? Yeah, I would say so. He always like like uh, Chaplin. He kind of has that same persona that he had. Well, I guess Keaton too. Same persona in like every movie. But you know, the charming, uh, intrepid young man who's kind of in the big city and you know usually trying to find a job or something like that. The Freshman is also a really good uh, Harold Lloyd movie too. I, I like how they don't even attempt to to hide that he's acting at all. They just call him Harold in this movie, which I, I thought was kind of funny. Yeah. All right, Todd. Good picks. What did you watch? Uh, so I watched uh, this movie on Netflix called Freaks. It's directed by Adam Stein and Zach Lepofsky. It came out last year, and I really love this movie. It's actually going to be my new number nine of 2019. Uh, it's wow. about this young girl named Chloe who is uh like seemingly being like held captive in her house by her father, who's played by Emil Hirsch, because uh, he says that going outside they will be exposed to the abnormals and they'll probably be killed just like uh, the girl's mother was. And it kind of shifts genres and that's when it really hits its stride. Like these directors previously had only worked on like Kimmel and the Disney Channel and this is as far from that as you can think of. It's probably best not to know too much more when going in because it really has a lot of rewards if you uh, just let it play out. Um, it's kind of like a 
hybrid between Room and Midnight Special, and I'm a big fan of both those movies, and it's actually better than both of them. And uh, Emil Hirsch, I think, is amazing in this movie. It's his best work, probably since Milk. Uh, the young girl reminds me of, like, B.B. Kiddo. Bruce Dern's in this as, like, an ice cream man slash grandfather figure to the group, and, uh, but the, the standout is this, uh, the, the girl from Silicon Valley named Amanda Crew. Uh, she actually probably should have been nominated last year. I think this is, like, another notch in her talent, because I just thought she was another really dry sense of humor, uh, actress, but she is really incredible in this. The final scenes are nuts, and, uh, it's kind of, it was on, like, a minuscule budget, and only maybe, like, 300000 at the box office, and I don't really know why. I think if, if it would have gotten more of a release, I think it probably could have done some damage. So, yeah, it's a easy three-and-a-half-star movie, number nine of 2019. Freaks. You, you guys seen that one? Wow, I've heard of that movie. I haven't seen it. I've heard I'm of not. it, and I uh, but I want to see it. Now even more so. I also watched another movie on Netflix. It was the new David Spade movie. It's like a Happy Madison production called uh, The Wrong Missy. And it's it's got like a typical like knockoff Sandler type plot, but like somehow, somehow it almost approaches being good in the end. It's like a two and a half star movie. I was actually surprised that it didn't absolutely suck. <laughs> when was the last time you could say that about a David Spade movie? That's, that's a good point. It, it's a good question. Surprised it didn't suck. I mean that that's that's like the highest David Spade can can uh, aspire to, right? <laughs> I don't even know the last time I watched him in a movie that wasn't grown up. So is it like I mean he had Joe Dirt Two come out at some point, but yeah, that's know. true. He just doesn't do anything anymore. That's a good point. All right. So that's what we've been watching. We definitely have some uh, some suggestions for you, and a lot of stuff you can actually find streaming. So uh, so check that out. Now it's time to get into our deep dive, and for this week, our deep dive is celebrating the 25th anniversary of the American president. What would happen if I called Sidney Wade and asked her to be my date at the state dinner on Thursday evening? President, we can't just go out on a date. I'm having dinner at the White House. I'm having lunch at the Kremlin. I don't know what happened. One minute I was calling him a mockery of an environmental leader. The next minute I had a date. She didn't say anything about me. Well, no, sir, but I can pass her a note before study hall. Uh, directed by Rob Reiner, written by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, we're going to be talking about this the rest of the time, all things about it. But first, we have to get into our trivia. So, Todd, you are hosting trivia. So uh, tell us uh, tell us what we're doing here. Uh, it's going to be our normal uh, deep dive trivia. So we got 15 questions worth a total of 25 points. And uh, I think I'm going to start with Terry. Okay. So, Zach, All unplug. Right. All right. Oh, he, he just so, walked away. <laughs> yeah. Something on the stove. Um, okay, so our first question is going to... I mean, it's going to sort of go from the beginning of the movie through the movie, I guess, because that's how I wrote the questions. Uh, okay. So what is the groundskeeper's name at the White House? Oh, gosh. Um, how? It's uh, Charlie. Okay. Uh, he, wow. He had okay. to be reminded of that by his... Uh, oh yes yes him. okay 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 gotcha yeah 
Okay, uh, how many Oscar nominations total was this cast nominated for in their careers? Oh, acting the cat acting acting nomination. Okay. Um Okay, so I think I think Michael Douglas just has one. Um and so I'll go with that. Uh Annette Bennings got Oh, three? Is that right? Or four? I'll go four. And then David Pamer has one. Um, and oh, who else? Martin Sheen, I don't think, has been nominated. Michael J. Fox wasn't nominated. Uh, I'm gonna go five. Uh, the correct answer is eight. You had the six. And then you forgot Richard Dreyfuss is two. Oh. So you had it oh, right. I did you have just six. said the wrong number too, so My bad. <laughs> oh, well. So yeah, that's alright. Uh what album poster is on Lucy's bedroom wall? What album poster? Ooh. I have no idea. Uh Abbey Road. That's correct. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, I'm not. I have no idea. Here's the correct answer. Yeah, exactly what you did. <laughs> okay. Why is the White House wow. the single greatest home court advantage in mo the modern world? Um. Oh, it it was. It was designed to intimidate world leaders. He says that. Is that the reason you're like, looking for? Yeah, that's basically it. Uh, city okay. planners designed D.C. to intimidate and humble foreign heads of state. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which two presidents were mentioned as having dated during their presidency? Uh, Woodrow Wilson. That's one point. And... And Buchanan? It was Thomas Jefferson. Oh, Jefferson. Buchanan was the only one that was, like, single. So, I went with them. Okay. What does GDC stand for? Uh, Global Defense Council. Correct. What advice does Lucy give Shepard for his first date? Uh, compliment her shoes. Correct. What is the name of the flower shop? Oh, 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 ah. Uh. It's like, it's like, oh, it's a name. Um, I'm going to get it wrong. Carmen. Carmen's Flowers? Carmen's House of Flowers. Oh, Carmen's okay. House of Flowers, okay. Correct. Uh, where does the president approve a bombing of? Libya. Correct. Where did Shepard go to college? Stanford. It's not Harvard. It's Stanford. You blowhole. Exactly. <laughs> um, what state is Rumson from? Ooh. Um. New Hampshire. It was Kansas. Can't. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Okay. 
where was Sydney they going? They to... speaking in New Hampshire because of the primaries. Anyways, go ahead. Okay. Where was Sydney going to move for a job at? Uh, Connecticut. You know the city? Hartford. Hartford. That's correct. Going to run the what's-his-name's campaign. Like Reynolds. Something like that. Yeah. Um, what room was Lewis writing the State of the Union in? Uh, oh, I'm going to be in the Roosevelt room. That's correct. All right. Uh, what will Adam's star rating of this movie be? What would Adam's star rating what of this will, movie what, be? What is his star rating of the movie? I don't know what it is yet, so we'll, we'll find out if we I actually have it. I haven't looked at it yet. Okay. Um, well, yeah, so, what? so we'll, we'll <laughs> maybe that'll oh. decide the winner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, ooh. He did text me and said it was amazing. So it's going to be three and a half or four. I'm going to go... Oh. I'm going to go three and a half. Okay. I will take note of that. And for ten points, uh, just for the hell of it, name the ten times that an actor has been nominated for an Oscar for playing a president, fictional or real. Okay. Uh... So you got Daniel Day-Lewis for Lincoln. Correct. You've got um, Anthony Hopkins for Nixon. Correct. You have... Um, oh, gosh. There's ten? This has happened ten times. Yes. <sighs> Nominated for playing the president. Okay, um... There, there was something, like, back in the 30s. I forget who played him, but was, was the guy in Young Lincoln nominated? No. Okay. Um, let's see here. Blah, 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 blah. Five. Four. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because you were kind of just wrong, so two. <laughs> yeah, I, w I was, but there's ten of them, so I was just kind of throwing that out there. Uh, but I don't know if I'm going to come up with any more. Yeah, just call me dead. All right. Yeah. So we got Raymond Massey for Abe Lincoln in Illinois. Alexander Knox for Wilson. James Whitmore for Give Him Hell, Harry. Anthony Hopkins for Amistad. Frank Langella, Frost Nixon. Oh, I should have had that one. A couple of years ago, Sam Rockwell for Vice. Oh, gosh. And then the, the fictional ones, Peter Sellers for Dr. Strangelove and Jeff Bridges for The Contender. So you got a total of 17, maybe 18, depending on what Adam's rating is. All right. Man, that was a crazy one. All right. Th this this one's nuts, Zach. This one's nuts. It's not, I, I don't wait. think it's that difficult. That last question, maybe. Uh, so <laughs> Terry got 17, potentially 18 points. <laughs> we will see when, because uh, I don't have the information yet. Uh, okay. Zach so, is going to beat me because of that last question. Like, he could suck on the entire rest of the thing and then beat me with that last question. I know. Question. I was going to think making each name like a half or something. I don't know. But we'll see. Uh, okay. Number one. What is the groundskeeper's name at the White House? No clue. Sam. Charlie. Charlie. It's when they they walk by him as he's like clipping oh, bushes or something. And, okay. 
Okay. Uh, how many Oscar nominations combined ha- has his cast been nominated for? A- acting oh. nominations. I'm mad I lost count. <laughs> you still were wrong. I still was wrong, but I'm mad I lost count. I was. Um, I had it. I was doing good. I don't know. Six. You were closer than Terry. It was eight. But yeah. I actually had. I actually had six. I one had the six, Michael and Douglas. I forgot. So yeah. I do, do I get a half point for that? Because I was closer. Uh, sure. Dude, All I right. remember David Paymer was nominated for an Oscar. You can't. <laughs> well, you can't give him a point for that. Well, he. He. You were counting through it too. I don't know. Okay. Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Well, <laughs> we have another questionable <laughs> question coming up. What album poster is on Lucy's bedroom wall? Abbey Road. That's correct. Dude, I totally shot in the dark, guessed that right. Nice. Yeah, I've, that stuck out to me this time. I'd never noticed that before. <clears throat> yeah, they show it like five times. Uh, why is the White House the greatest single home court advantage in the modern world? Because it was designed as a fortress? Like the city? Yeah, basically, yeah. It was in di- designed to intimidate and intimidate. humble foreign heads of state. Yeah. yeah, thank you. You're giving him the whole point for that? Oh, come on. I knew that. I knew, well, I knew I mean, the scene. That was the gist of it. Okay. Which two presidents were mentioned as having dated during their presidency? Uh, Woodrow Wilson. That's one. Um, are you talking about during that speech or, or that scene or another president who dated? Uh, that he scene where he two presidents it. that, 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 In that did, scene. Yeah, that dated. Oh, two yeah. presidents that dated. Oh. Uh... <laughs> well, he mentions Franklin Roosevelt in that scene, but I, I don't think that's the answer to your question. I think the other president he mentions is, I have no clue, James Buchanan. I don't know. That's what I said. <laughs> it was Jefferson. Jefferson, that's right. Okay. What does GDC stand for? Global Defense Council. That's correct. What advice does Lucy give Shepard for her first date or for his first date? Uh, compliment her shoes. Correct. Where? No, no. What is the name of the flower shop? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. Carmen's House of Flowers. Carmen's House. Did Did Terry get that? I pulled that out of my ass. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Where does the president approve a bombing of? Uh, Libya. Correct. What uh, What college did Shepard go to? Stanford. Stanford is correct. What state is Rumson from? Oh, the greatest state in the Union, of course. The great state of Kansas. Correct. Uh, where was Sydney going to move for a job? Hartford. To work on uh, Richard's campaign. Uh, that is correct. W- which room was uh, Lewis writing the State of the Union in? Uh, uh, <laughs> I have no clue. The dining room. I'll be in the Roosevelt oh. room giving Lewis oxygen. That's right. That's right. I got it. Room. What is going to be Adam's star rating for this movie? Ooh, good question. Um, I think he enjoyed this movie. 
I think he recognizes some of its corny values, but I think overall he was a fan, and I, he's going to give it three and a half stars. Okay, that's exactly what Terry said, and I don't know what the answer is yet. Uh, that was a I great do. question. I have it, so I'll, I'll, I'll reveal it after we're done. Okay, and the final question worth ten points. Name the this ten is a controversial times that one. That an actor has been nominated for an Oscar for playing a president, real or fictional. Okay. Yikes. You okay. are currently down by three points. <laughs> so I need four. You need okay. four, correct. Yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis from Lincoln. That's correct. Um, that was the first one out of my mouth, too. Peter Sellers for Dr. Strangelove. Correct. Um, hmm. Do I get like, is this like trivia or is this like our, our, uh, uh, our trivia in normal episodes? Do I like get immediately kicked out if I say an incorrect answer? Yeah, pr- pretty much. Yeah. T- Terry. Anthony kind of Hopkins for Nixon. Anthony Hopkins that's, for Nixon. That, that's good. Yep. That, that's the other one I got. Um, I have one I want to say, but not if it's incorrect. I, I want to be right. Um, <laughs> I can't remember the actor who played Woodrow Wilson and Wilson. Otherwise, I'd say that. Um, I can't remember. Uh, let me think. You guys are currently tied. Well, unless I count Zach's half point for uh, being closer. John Travolta was not nominated for Primary Colors. Josh Brolin was not nominated for W. Uh... I'm going to go with my crazy answer, which is Henry Fonda for Young Mr. Lincoln, but I don't think that's right. That's what I said! That's wrong. <laughs> so, Great minds think alike. I mean, I guess I have to, at that point, give Zach the win for having uh, being closer on his <laughs> nominations guess. The, the ones you did not get were Raymond Massey for Abe Lincoln in Illinois. Uh, Alexander Knox for Wilson, James Whitmore for Give Him Hell, Harry, Anthony Hopkins for Amistad, Frank Langella, mm. Frost Nixon, oh. Sam Rockwell for Vice, and Jeff Bridges for The Contender. So I guess Zach is going to win 12 and a half to 12 because well, Terry do we want to the settle this uh, number. Do we want to settle Adam's, uh, Adam's debate here? Well, yeah, you guys said the same, the same score, so... All right, so so here's here's Adam. He he sent me. So Adam, the whole reason this this came up as a potential deep dive is a few weeks ago we were doing a list, and we were all like sure that Adam was about to mention the American president, and he had never even heard of this movie before. So we're deep diving it because it came up, and then he had to watch it because it came up. So um, he sent me in a review of this movie. And so I'm going to read his review next, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it. So uh, he says, after uh, after never hearing about this film until a few weeks ago, I'm glad you guys are deep diving this. Uh, Air Force One has been one of my favorite 90s action movies, and James Marshall, Marshall, one of my favorite movie presidents. But after watching this film, I'll admit that I'm disappointed in myself for not watching this until this week. From the opening scene, Sorkin's dialogue put a smile on my face. I was hooked and glued to the screen. I loved how each character was fleshed out and had depth to them. Really enjoyed Douglas as the president. He really stood out to me. Michael J. Fox and Michael Sheen. Uh, uh, Martin, Martin Sheen. 
Martin Sheen. Yeah, both had characters I really enjoyed. No, he was not. Uh, And wanted to see more from. Annette Bening was delightful and adorable in this film. I loved how this film's politics weren't just 90s issues, but something that totally transcends the decades. Issues we are still dealing with today. I really love this film. Um, And the more I think about, the more I like it. Easy Four Stars, new number nine of 1995. Wow. I mean, I knew he'd like it, but not number well, one. Well, we, we were close. Nine, number nine and ninety-five. Oh, not number nine. Oh, okay. That makes number nine. Sense. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you well, guys really did pretty much tie. Except I, I'll give Zach. <laughs> well, I, mean, I don't know. That, that's really. I knew that the actor from know. Wilson was nominated. I just couldn't remember. He knew his the name. actor yeah. from Wilson was not. I'll give him that. I'll See, give him that. I was that. going to make each actor in movie. I was going to make each of them worth a half point. So Zach would have gotten an extra half there anyway if I had done it with True. my original thought process. How funny! How often is it on our stupid trivia that we forget the most recent movies like Vice and and uh, Frost Nixon? Frost Nixon. I mean, we saw that movie together, didn't we, Terry? Like that's just oh, ridiculous. I. I, it's weird how uh, your memory works like that when you get old. The Oscar nominations... All right, uh, 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 Zach, you missed this. The Oscar nominations I had. I had six of the eight, and I just forgot about Richard Dreyfus and to count him, and then I forgot... I lost count and said five. But I had named six. I said Michael Douglas had one, Annette Benning had four, and David Paymer had one. So I'm going to go with five. I lost count. Did you know that Bob Brunson was from Kansas? Please tell I did me not. you knew that. Yeah, see, that's the reason I should win. I mean, if you didn't, if you didn't even know that, then I knew shame Carmen's on you. House of Flowers, though, and I knew he and was in the, the Roosevelt, Roosevelt room. room. I don't. Remember I, that I started line at saying all. the quote. <laughs> that's how it came to me. All right, well, Zach wins. So, Zach, tell us, uh, tell us about uh, the American president, what it's all about. Since we've been referencing it now, tell us, uh, tell us what it is and what you thought of it. All right, well, the American president is. Uh, the Rob Reiner directed, Aaron Sorkin written uh, political uh, comedy drama from 1995. Definitely a high concept movie, you know. Like I can imagine them pitching this uh, this project in the Castle Rock studio, saying, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna get people that like uh, romantic movies. We're gonna get people that like uh, political movies. We're gonna get people that like dramas. Uh, and uh, you know this this is gonna really sell. I'm surprised this movie wasn't even a bigger hit than it really was and it was a pretty big hit i'm also surprised it didn't get more oscar nominations quite frankly this seems like a total oscar slam dunk it's a classic movie it's very much in the vein of forrest gump in the sense that it's a movie that is optimistic about america it looks at our best features it's very much in the capra-esque tradition so much so that capra is even referenced in the dialogue of this movie oh aaron sorkin is just so wily winking his eye at the camera um, yeah, and it's and it's the first movie that Michael Douglas did that didn't involve, uh, uh, you know, him getting naked and having an affair with someone uh, in the last, in like, 15 years before, you know? It, it brought him out of the disclosure and fatal attraction period. So, yay for you, Michael Douglas. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it, yeah, I don't know if I'm as enthusiastic today about it as I, as I was back then or as Adam is apparently now, but uh, it's, it's still a solid watch, I think. We'll talk about it, but you know it was an entertaining watch, and it set the pre- it set the the footprints for, of course, the West Wing, which we can also talk about too. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think that that was the biggest takeaway. I have not watched any of the West Wing, and I've I've always wanted to, and I'll probably go back soon and start revisiting it or visiting it for the first time. 
But uh, I always I thought heard that this was Sorkin like... didn't even want to do it. Do what? The West Wing? Yeah, he didn't want to do the West Wing, but uh, like he didn't want to do the same like subject matter. But they kind of forced him to do it. And then he like he said he still hasn't even seen the last three seasons of the show because he quit writing after like season two or something. And uh, I don't know. I think that's kind of funny because it seems like he fits so well in that in that realm, but it's kind of odd. Yeah. Well, I would say I, I think this is um, definitely like a slam dunk Terry movie, and uh, and I definitely love this movie. It's in my top ten of ninety five. I give it. I, I have it as a high three and a half stars. I think it's my highest three and a half star of that year. Um, it it's it's just. It's just delightful. It's it's got the um, it, it um, it's got that like like Zach was saying what Zach was criticizing about about having those ideas and that Capra esque feel is what I kind of love about it. I love that it's it's got this like um, love of history which you can tell from it as well. Um, it is uh, but yet still has is really just at its heart kind of a kind of a rom com at times as well. So I, I, it's, it's a great movie. Um, Aaron Sorkin definitely takes it to another level. Um, this is the, the up to, uh, a few good men for both Rob Reiner and Aaron Sorkin who worked together on that movie, which I also love. Um, and I think you can tell that the same, the same, uh, writer director combo did this as did that. So, uh, I, I love this movie. I hadn't seen it in a long time before I watched it for this. Uh, my wife hadn't had never watched it, and she absolutely loved it as well. Todd, how about you? Yeah, I've always liked the movie. Uh, it's kind of weird. Like on my IMDb, I, I had it as like a, what I equ- uh, equate to like a two and a half star. And on our website, it said three and a half stars. But on my actual ratings, I said three stars. So I don't really know where my opinion was going in. But there was a movie last year with a similar plot that I actually think is funnier and more clever and more romantic, and that's Longshot. And so this movie kind of just pales in comparison to that, honestly. And I know you guys really disagree with that, but you guys are wrong. Uh, I don't know. This movie, the corniness definitely stuck out this time. I do still like it. It is an entertaining movie and it is well-written. And I think it's more of like a three-star movie now. But um, it, it is a movie that I have watched quite a bit over the years. And uh, it's definitely a Terry movie and an Adam movie and a Terry Senior movie. <laughs> are are you are you seriously saying that that the Seth and Evan version of this story is better than the Aaron Sorkin version of the story? Yeah, so you're I mean, seriously saying that. If you look at IMDb, they have the exact same score. But yeah, I think Longshot is a quite a, a better movie than this. Oh. You know what I like about this that makes movie? Me sick. I feel like this movie could be watched today with. I'm not going to say a Trump supporter would like this movie, but I would say that you could get a someone far to the left, like I am, you know, crazed Bernie supporter, and then maybe a Biden supporter, or maybe even like a Marco Rubio supporter, or someone who's not deranged and crazed. I mean, maybe they are. I don't know. But I feel like this movie could 
a lot of people could would like this movie. I mean, for for a movie that is admittedly left wing and and shows a left wing president in a very I think uh, uh, generous light, um, I do think it's a movie that uh, is is sort of universally uh, likable, and and I think that's impressive. Maybe the mood wasn't as divisive in 1995. I don't know. I would I would argue the opposite. I mean, I think it was just as divisive in 1995, but maybe just in a different sort of um, dynamic. But I feel like I'll, this movie could cut across generations and 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 maybe races and, and genders. I, I feel like um, you watch this movie and it is very, like Terry said, sort of compulsively likable. Well, and I think I think one of the things that goes to what you were just saying is it's a political movie that doesn't shy away from the politics, but also isn't about the politics, which is what makes it likable. I mean, yeah, it doesn't hide the fact that that he's that he's left wing, that he's definitely a Democratic president, that Rumson is definitely a right wing Republican. But it also isn't about that at all. So you don't really you, you, you don't look at it and say, well, I have to hate this movie because I don't agree with that guy's politics. That's not what this movie is about. It's about the people. But it but in the political sphere, which is what I think Aaron Sorkin definitely brings to it. Agreed. By the way, this movie is much better than The Contender. I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, the Contender is a terrible movie, and I was reminded that Jeff Bridges was somehow nominated for an Oscar for that, which is ridiculous. Have either of you seen The Contender? Yeah. Oh, it's bad. Do you agree with me, Todd? It's it's like ridiculously outrageous. And Ebert gave it four stars, so I completely disagree with Ebert about it. But it is like it is so bad in comparison with this movie. Didn't Joan Allen right. get nominated for that as well? Yeah, they were both she nominated. Did. I mean, I don't remember hating it that much. I think I probably gave it three stars. But it's just like, why know. did that movie get so much Oscar love and this movie didn't? I mean, maybe 95 arguably is a stronger year than 99, but The Contender, I mean, give me a well, break. Well, this is a Golden Globes trash. movie, and it Sorkin is Golden movies Globes. are Golden Globes movies. And, I mean, it was nominated for, like, six Golden Globes. I mean, it's like, movies like this and, like, closer, like, really dialogue-heavy movies are not Oscar movies, those are Globe movies. And so, I yeah, don't know. It, I don't know why I, I it is like hear, that. It was nominated for five Golden Globes, picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. It was nominated for one Oscar, and that was for best comedy score. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it was the original musical or comedy score category. But I I think what what helped it at the Globes is they considered it a, a musical, so or a, a comedy so it was in the best picture comedy musical best actor comedy musical best actress comedy musical but yeah it got director and screenplay which at the globes is just is just one category so yeah the fact that it got completely snubbed at the oscars is is sad it was named a top 10 film by the national board of review it was nominated at the writers guild um but yeah ignored everywhere else i wonder if the oscars were just trying to be too pretentious a little bit that year Although, I don't know. I mean, the 95 Oscars are so strange, and we've talked about this before, but, like, I mean, Babe and Il Postino, I don't know. I feel like this is a movie that... I'm not necessarily saying this is a better movie than either of those, but this is a movie that certainly was marketed more as a mainstream Oscar movie. But, I don't know. Maybe they were just... They they felt it was too populist. Well, and, I mean... Rob Reiner was nominated for Best Director at the Globes, along with Ron Howard, who was also snubbed for the Oscar. So, yeah, it's just kind of crazy. And, yeah, Mike Figgis, there were six director nominees at the Globes that year. Mel Gibson still won, 
But the other five were Ang Lee, Martin Scorsese, Mike Figgis, Rob Reiner, Ron Howard. How many of those got Oscar nominations? Two? Ang, Ang Lee, right? Ang Lee and, and, and Mel, Mel Gibson? Gibson. Were that, was that it? <laughs> yeah. I'm looking it up. Because it was, yeah, the Oscars, it was Mel Gibson. And, no, Ang Lee wasn't even in there. It was uh, Chris Noonan for Babe, Michael Radford, Phil Postino, Mike Figgis. Oh, Figgis was nominated for Leaving oh, okay. Las Vegas, and Tim Robbins for Dead Man Walking. Yeah, that was a weird year. I don't know That's what That's insane. <laughs> There's like no, uh, like the matchup from picture to director is oddly not much there either. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if they did that now. I don't know what that would look like. Some I mean, of those yeah, movies seem you... like classics, but they were not loved that much by the Oscars that year, but they got some love. I don't know. That, that's kind of weird. I don't think Babe or Il Postino would be anywhere near it at this point. Can you imagine in today's in today's awards races, only two of the five director nominees overlapping from Golden Globes to Oscar? I don't it's know. Ridiculous. In a, in a weird way, I could see that happening. I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt that that could happen again someday because the Oscars have always wanted to distance themselves from the Golden Globes to some extent. You know, they're always more serious than the Golden Globes. So I, it is an aberration, but it's not necessarily a once in a lifetime occurrence. And one of the overlaps wasn't even a picture nominee. It's strange. Yeah. I, 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 guess, I guess you're right. Not impossible, but just weird. Can we talk about Rob Reiner for a second? I was thinking about this today. Do you know what Rob Reiner's previous film was before uh, The American President? Wasn't it... Oh, a few oh, Good Men? A Few Good Men. No, 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 no. no. Uh, the one before... Oh, North? North. I mean, the what is... he did right before, is what you mean. Has there ever been a... I mean, and you could maybe even include A Few Good Men in this, but has there ever been the highs and lows of going from A Few Good Men to North to The American President? I mean, that's insane. How about insane. Crouching Tiger to Hulk to Brokeback Mountain? No. Hulk isn't that bad. Hulk is not yeah, North-level bad. Have you I'm seen North? North. No. North is, is, is abysmal. I mean, Ebert was absolutely right about that. Of course, I would say that. But it is really bad. Just trust me, okay? Like... I can't. I I would compare it to like you know the 1999 St. Louis Rams or something like going from just absolute trash garbage to winning the Super Bowl. I mean I can't think of you know maybe Hulk okay Hulk is because Hulk is a pretty bad movie but I can't think of another example where a director went from that low to that high that quickly. Rob Reiner was on quite a run too. Like his first his first feature film that he directed was Spinal Tap. And he went, and then he did The Sure Thing. But after that, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, North, American President. And then the next year he did Ghosts of Mississippi. And after that, he really hasn't made a movie of any great consequence. And his only Oscar nomination he ever got was for Picture for A Few Good Men. Like, and so oh, he's made all these great movies. He's like Norman Jewison that way. He just never singled out as the director, you know? like Norman Jewison. I don't know if anyone's ever compared him to Norman Jewison, but I like it. Terry, are you saying that the bucket list doesn't have great consequence? Yeah. Or, <laughs> or rumor has it? Or, or Yeah, yeah. I never yeah, saw LBJ, just... but... Uh, yeah, it was okay. Yeah. 
The underrated All one right. in there is is flipped. I stand by flipped. You know, flip is is totally saturine, sentimental, but it it's not a bad movie. I, I knew I knew you were a fan of that one. Yeah, it's very cute. All right, well let's uh let's move on and start talking about some of our uh, some of our categories here that we work our way through. Um, oh, but first before we get to recasting, do we, let's do our Mount Rushmore. So with uh with us talking about the American president, we decided to uh, also do a Mount Rushmore on this episode of the greatest fictional presidents of all time. Um and uh and so we'll uh, we'll kind of go through and pick a uh, pick who we got here. I put this up on Twitter and I got um a couple responses from Adam, but uh we'll get to those in a sec. Um, I'll go first. Uh, because honestly, I realized I haven't seen like barely any of these or really were impressed by any of these. So um, I'm going to take the low hanging fruit and say who's uh, who Adam has already mentioned. That's uh, President James Marshall brought to you by Harrison Ford and Air Force One. It's definitely the coolest a president has ever been um, on screen. And uh, and yeah, the putting the president at the at the heart of an action film is pretty pretty awesome so that's gonna be my pick but yeah i found a list here of fictional presidents and i'm like yeah none of these really either i haven't seen any of them or they don't really stand out as being that important so or i have yeah so uh yeah that's that's that todd how about you who are you putting forth uh well for sticking to movies i We'll definitely well, say... Like, we don't have to stick to movies. We can go We can go anything. Uh, well, but kind of either way, I would still go for President Merkin Muffley in uh, Dr. Strangelove. Because, I mean, his name says everything, you know. And he has, you know, he obviously has a classic line. You know, you can't fight in here, this is the war room. He, he's, I don't know, it's a hilarious character. Peter Sellers at his absolute best. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he plays, what, three parts in that. But, I mean, Merkin Muffley, he's always a highlight. No fighting in the war room. Oh, that, 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 that's a good one. That's probably the only other one. Uh, if I mean, yeah, the only other one I would uh, I would mention. Zach, how about you? Okay, this was a, sort of a tough one. I mean, Merkin Muffley. I mean, that's I think that's sort of an obvious one. Um, I thought about Billy Bob Thornton in Love Actually, who's who's pretty funny. It's sort of a cameo appearance, but uh, he's he's pretty good in that. I thought about Jack Warden as the president in Being There, who befriends uh, Chance, Chance the Gardener, aka Chauncey Gardner, and appoints him, you know, some uh, serious role. And eventually, you can make the case that Chauncey Gardner becomes president at the end of Being There. But uh, the one I decided to go with is from an obscure movie from the 1930s. We're talking about obscure movies from the 30s a little bit on this podcast, but it's one of my favorite obscure movies from the 30s, and it's called Gabriel Over the White House. And in the movie Gabriel Over the White House, the president is played by Walter Houston, and what's cool about him is like he's this total rich snob that gets elected and he gets elected for all the reasons that republicans get elected today he just gives bailouts to corporations doesn't care about the little man this movie was made in 1933 it's during the depression and what's cool about this movie it's a really good movie directed by um, uh, gregory lacava is the president gets in a car accident something gets 
up in his brain like he he actually goes through like brain surgery and he becomes a liberal like magically he all the corporate bailout money he decides to give to poor people and he decides to like uh, give money to education and social services and then gradually you know it's it's amnesia essentially but then gradually he kind of grows and starts remembering what a complete asshole Republican he was and then you know he has to sort of ask about compromising his morals or anything like that it's a really good movie uh, I'm gonna go with the obscure pick Walter Houston because I've been craving that movie lately I love old you know obscure movies and uh, that was a good one all right I have never seen that one neither have I but yeah. these are our quality drunk uh, 1,135 views, uh, uh, votes, so not it crosses the 1,000 threshold. But it is a movie I've, I've seen and I really like. It's, it's worth checking out. Okay. So who's, who's going to be our fourth here? So for the first one I thought of, sadly, was uh, Tim Robbins as the president in Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. That's <laughs> a good one. That is a That's, that's like a saying good a one. gajillion, bajillion dollars, and that kind of money doesn't even exist. Would you miss that it? Is a good one. Would you miss it? <laughs> That's it. Show you what money. That that is a good one. We could go with Jed Bartlett from The West Wing, although it doesn't sound like either of you are big fans of that show. Well, I've, I've never, never seen, seen The West Wing. Go with Frank Underwood. Yeah, that's why I thought you might go with. That's why I actually I've thought never your seen pick the was ha- be. I've never seen House of Cards either. Well, but we originally said movie president, so I didn't even think about TV presidents. What about President Dave? We could go with Dave. He's I've never seen Dave. The... What? Oh my god. Know. Okay, you're saying that the American <laughs> president is a Terry movie. Dave is a Terry yeah, movie. I thought Jeez. Terry was going to say Gene Hackman in Welcome to Mooseport. Oh, wow. I didn't even think of that. Is he the president or is he a senator? He was a, he was a president, and then he's oh, like okay. running for mayor. That well, I think I think our fourth one needs to be Andrew Shepard. Could be President yeah. Charlotte Field from uh, Longshot. No, nah, that's no, not, that's not happening. No. <laughs> How about we go to Adam say, for this? All right. Well, Adam Adam has obviously said Frank yeah, Marshall he, or not Frank Marshall, James Marshall from Air Force One, and his other and then one he picked was the president from Idiocracy, which yeah, was yeah, a good pre- pick. He, he I, totally I did. President Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho from Idiocracy. I'd be okay with that one. Yeah, that's a really good I'd be one. okay with that, too. That's a good pick. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is our president right now, but, you know, it's it's a good pick. So, Zach, you mentioned you mentioned to potentially talk about uh, the worst presidents, fake presidents of all time, and so I, I had a few of them that I, I thought of that I wanted to mention here. Uh, first, Bob Odenkirk from uh, from uh, Longshot is definitely one of the worst presidents. Um, I think you also have to say, oh, what other ones did I have on here? I had a list here. How about Leslie Nielsen in this scary movie franchise? President oh, that's good. That's Baxter good. Baxter Davis. Um, I think you also have to go with uh, Charlie Sheen and Machete Kills. Um, oh, that's a good. He's a good president in that. And uh, and but by far. You you have to say President Ashton brought to us by William Hurt and Vantage oh. Point. Dad, God damn it! That's, <laughs> can I change my vote? <laughs> President Ashton should be in the top four. God, but damn it, we Terry. weren't there. <sighs> Rewind that. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, any president who's going to have a, a, a someone identical to him make a stump speech on an international stage, an international broadcast like that, <laughs> that takes cojones. And to survive the assassination attempt, that was a great pick. I, I thought that was a good one. That was even better than your nocturnal animals as the best cast. That was, <laughs> an, that was an inspired pick. Uh, all right. Well, let's get into uh, let's get into some recasting here. Uh, so we always in our deep dives talk about who would play these characters uh, today if this movie were to come out. Um, we're gonna go through it looks like five of the main characters here, and talk about them. Uh, starting with the American president, President Andrew Shepard. Brought to us by Michael Douglas. Uh, Todd, who would play Andrew Shepard today? I went with Edward Norton because I feel like he could, is easily uh, slides into the role as being the most sophisticated guy in the room. And he has like an unlikability like Shepard does, like Michael Douglas does in a lot of this. And he's really good with uh, spitting out quick dialogue. I, but I feel like he could also be charming at the same time. It, it, it's I, I'm not really sure how old. Michael Douglas is supposed to be in this movie, or Martin Sheen, but uh, I, I feel like the, the, that'd be around the right age range, I guess. Yeah, I think Edward Norton would be awesome as president. Okay. Okay. Can we just get to your AJ pick as played by Emile Hirsch? I mean, this is like the most obvious... Well, whatever. I'll, I'll shut up. Okay. Yeah, I respect that pick, Zach, who's your president? I went... Okay, so we're not going to have a remake of The American President with another old white dude as president. That's just not going to happen. Now, as Todd mentioned earlier, I think a really nice conspiracy theory is that The American President basically is long shot. I sort of agree. So I actually thought about saying Charlie's Theron because in many ways, she does sort of personify many of the things that President Shepard also personifies. I decided not to go that way, though. I went with Keegan-Michael Key. You know what? You got a, 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 a black man who is regal. I thought about Jordan Peele, too, but that's the low-hanging fruit because he does such a good impersonation of Obama. Um, but uh, Keegan-Michael Key, I, I love it. I think he, he's, he's regal, he's sincere, he connects with voters, and he's also funny, but serious and great. Okay. I had a tough time um, recasting the president. Um, the first one I thought of was uh, Aaron Eckhart. And then I was looking at this list and saw that he played the president in Olympus Has Fallen and London Has Fallen. So I didn't want to repeat <laughs> someone who'd already been president before. Yeah, I was going to um, say, he seems like the president of Michael Bay movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, you got to come up with someone who, I, I mean, it, it, he's good. Look, I, I think it's funny. You can tell that this was the product of the Clinton era, too, because you had this president who was dynamic and and charismatic and good looking and charming and and that i mean that's that's who bill clinton was uh so you got to find someone that kind of falls in that vein and so um who better than kyle chandler i mean once i saw that name and he was right around the same age michael douglas was when he made it i mean that was like that was perfect it was it was perfect so kyle chandler as much as i hate i like every time i see him i'm like oh kyle chandler but he's always good and he fits, so. All right, well, that's who I had for Bob Rumson, so let's go for, let's go into that. Because, <laughs> all right, I feel let's like, go to Bob Rumson. I feel like he has that, like, wry smile that could, like, either attract you or piss you off, and that's exactly what you need for that type of character, and I feel like if you take away his black hair, he would easily be Bob Rumson. It's, I, he wouldn't, I mean, obviously, Richard Dreyfus in 1995, was really good at playing a guy, like, 30 years older than him, but... 
Child Shamrock. Specifically yeah. in 1995. <laughs> Only in 1995. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I think Kyle Chandler would be a great Rumson. But I mean, I could see it from uh, from the Shepherd perspective too. Okay. Well, Zach, who do you have for Rumson? Uh, I went with Greg Kinnear because we haven't talked about him enough lately. You know, we're talking about a senator from the great state of Kansas, someone who's who's annoying but also lovable in a in a roundabout way. So why not Greg Kinnear or Sam Rockwell? Because if you're going to cast someone who's unlikable, then he's the de- de- default. But I'm, I'm sticking with Greg Kinnear. It's not bad. Uh, I thought about going with Michael Stuhlbarg because that's who I cast as Mr. Holland in Mr. Holland's Opus, um, but <laughs> but I, I didn't. Um, and maybe it's the influence of what I've been watching. I went with Brian Cranston. Um, he he's played oh, he's a politician before. Um, well, he he's, he played LBJ. LBJ wasn't likable. Um, I don't know. I th- I thought it kind of fit. I could see him pulling it off. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Miss uh, Miss Sydney Ellen Wade, originally brought to us by Annette Benning. Todd, who do you got? I couldn't get out of my head Allison Brie, because uh, I feel like that role requires a lot of like awkwardness and like a lot of like having like bright eyes in like the right situation, like being sort of in over your head. And I feel like she's really good at playing that sort of you know shy but also opinionated person and uh, she, like i feel like annette benning has a lot of also like real like fake line delivery and alice brie is perfect at that like her and aubrey plaza pretty much owned that like fake line delivery feeling authentic and so i i couldn't get her out of my head she'd be the perfect sydney ellen wade all right all right zach who do you got okay i went to saturday night live for this pick and i decided to go with sashir zamata who is also better known as Keely from Black Jeopardy. And she uh, would bring a lot of dynamic, uh, you know, ability to the role. She seems like she's pretty smart. Keely gets a lot of those questions correct. And, um, yeah, I, I, she's awesome. I don't know why she's not in more stuff. Let's, let's bring her, Sashir Zamata, to, uh, more to national prominence. She's also a writer Zameda. on SNL, too. Zameda. I'm Zameda. sorry. Zameda. Viva Zabata. <laughs> uh, and that's not bad for the direction you're going. Uh, I, I like you, I like the outside the box thinking there. Uh, I'm outside going outside the white um, thinking. There you go. Uh, so as I was thinking about this, so Annette Benning has never really been. I mean, she she's great in this. She's stunning in this, but she never really has been the leading lady. And she's not, like, the traditional leading lady type either. Because uh, at first I was looking, like, what if what about someone like Anne Hathaway? And, but no, that, that's, too, that's too glossy. That's too much the, the leading lady type. And then I found I, I really like this pick. My pick for Sydney is Elizabeth Moss. Because um, she's been doing a lot of really good stuff recently, but it's not the typical leading lady stuff. And I think that's what that's what you're looking for from Sydney. You're looking for someone who, who has that charm and um, and can can have that attraction, but isn't necessarily you know the the drop dead diva either. So um, so I'm going Elizabeth Moss. Now what's funny about that pick is neither of you watched The West Wing. Elizabeth Moss, one of her earliest roles was Jed Bartlett's daughter, the first daughter on The West Wing. Zoe. Well, that's really funny. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. All right. AJ, 
originally brought to us by uh, by President Bartlett, Martin Sheen. Todd, who do you got? Uh, I couldn't come up with a real good one for this. He's way too old, but David Strathairn is a perfect AJ. I mean, uh, he's never oh, going to be... Oh, that's a great call. But he's never going to be best friends with Edward Norton at this point. I think he's like 80 years old at this point. But you need someone with a really dry sense of humor, and Strathairn, I feel like, could be an easy Sorkin uh, actor, and uh, I, that, that'd be the best role I could come up with for him. That's a good call. That's a good call. Thanks. Zach, how about you? Okay, um, I went with Lance Reddick because he's old enough to play the role, as we've deduced on this podcast before. Um, he brings a lot of uh, grace and effervescence to the role, um, and he's not afraid to be a badass either. Put him in any role, and he's there. Brilliant. All right, well, for AJ, for me, one of the guys I, I actually was, uh, was thinking of was Greg Kinnear who Zach already mentioned. Um, but the one I actually went with uh, was uh, George Clooney. You got to find someone who's okay kind of being in the background. And George Clooney recently, that's kind of what he's been what he's been up to. And I was thinking kind of a similar role to what he did in Good Night and Good Luck, which is funny that you mentioned David Strathairn. Um, that would kind of be what his AJ would look like, and I think it would work. Okay. All right. Lewis Rothschild, brought to us by Michael J. Fox. Todd, who do you got? Uh, I went with Andrew Garfield. Uh, he's been in a Sorkin movie before, and I think he's really good at sounding smart by just by talking faster. And But he's also a little whiny, and I feel like that really fits Lewis. Uh, he could be a political flunky, and he seems like the perfect candidate for being like, I just got out of, like grad school and i'm in like i have an internship or something and then all of a sudden he's like working on some campaign i i, I feel like he andrew garfield fits that pretty nicely and michael j fox is kind of hard to replace in this like, he's always stood out to me well i mean he's he's michael j fox he's just kind of hard to replace in general yeah uh zach how about you all right well michael j fox you know he comes from the world of tv He's Alex Keaton on All in the Family. So I dipped into my TV pool and was really thinking about someone also from that same era, maybe a little later, that we could resurrect their career, maybe Tarantino style. And who else, Who other, when you, when you think of actors from the early 90s, do you think of than Jaleel White? And I feel like, let's get Jaleel White back in the spotlight, Urkel. I look on his IMDb page, he's only 44 years old. I know it's a little old for Lewis, I get it. But I think he could nail that role, and it would be a nice comeback role for him. Oh come on, that doesn't deserve a breath, you know, a breath like that. That's not a terrible pick. It's not horrible. Uh, okay, uh, I actually went to the land of TV for my pick too. My my Lewis is Darren Chris, who uh, originally got notoriety for being in Glee. But uh, since then, he's in the brand new uh, Netflix show Hollywood. He was in American Crime Story um, about the murder of Gian, uh, Versace. Um, he he's a solid actor that, and he won a Golden Globe for that for his role in uh, the Versace show as well. Um, he's a solid actor that's kind of up and coming, and I think he would uh, he would really uh, shine in a role like this. Did you have writers and directors? I did not. Did you? 
I went with written and directed by Craig Brewer, the uh, blackest white man alive. <laughs> That's a terrible pick. And I had it produced by Barack and Michelle Obama as part of their Higher Ground Productions. Okay, Craig Brewer. <laughs> Black Snake Moan to the White House. I mean, who, direct, right. who directed Long Shot? It's not like the, that... Jonathan you know. Levine. <laughs> He's made good movies, at least. At least a couple. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, yes, let's, let's get into let's get into the rest please. of our categories here. Hopping into the highest war performance, the most irreplaceable performance of the entire cast. I'm gonna go first. I, honestly, I thought this was kind of a hard category because there's so many people that that are kind of kind of iconically represented that role. But I'm gonna go Michael Douglas as the president. It was one of the harder ones to recast because he kind of just was the perfect fit in that moment for that role of being. Um, uh, like I said before, being this this dynamic, charismatic, charming guy, um, and, and uh, he was he's impossible not to like in this movie. So, um, and, and you see that everyone that's on, that's in his inner circle just loves the guy because he is just this type of this type of character, and and that's all Michael Douglas and and what he brings to it. So uh, so I think he's got the highest war. Zach, how about you? Well, you know, I had a hard time with this because we, well, it's actually kind of interesting because we, this is a nice case study about war, the idea of wins above replacement, because so much of this show influenced the West Wing. And if you watch the West Wing, which I have, the characters are composites in the West Wing. You know, we, President Andrew Shepard, President Jeb Bartlett, they all kind of have composites in the TV series. So I had a hard time thinking of high war performances that we saw in the West Wing. The one performance, though, that was not in the West Wing because the president was married in the West Wing to Stalker Channing, and that, of course, was Annette Benning as Sidney Ellen Wade. Uh, she's awesome in this movie. Uh, she is mature. She's not 20 years old. She's educated. She's articulate, intelligent, beautiful. Uh, she holds herself well. She's great. Um, she's radiant in this movie. It's what a lot of critics said. Uh, very hard to find in the 1990s, especially a good replacement for that. So I think she's pretty clearly the highest war. It's a good pick. It's a good pick. Todd, before you get to your pick, uh, Adam sent us his picks for these as well, and I just wanted to say his before we get to you, and that his was Michael Sheen as AJ. So, uh, is his highest war? Is his highest war? And he and he said okay. totally auditioning for the West Wing. So, with that said, who is who is your highest war? Uh, I went with Michael J. Fox because I feel like he put so much personality into it just by being Michael J. Fox, and that. I've, I've always thought he gave the best performance in the movie. I think at the time, maybe only, like, Matthew Broderick could have tapped into that. But, like, Michael Jacob Fox still looks like he did ten years earlier. But he actually acts like he belongs in that world as well as he could have still looked like a high schooler at the same time. Michael J. Fox, I think he gives the best performance. It's the highest war. And I, I that's why recasting that part was the hardest. Okay. Yeah, he... He is really good in that movie. However, Bradley Whitford is essentially AJ in the West Wing. And so, uh, I'm sorry, not AJ, Lewis in the West Wing. And he's really good in that too, giving a very similar performance. So that's why, even though maybe he might have the best performance in the movie, I think you could see replacements. And the other reason you couldn't replace the other one is because you never saw someone try? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sound logic. <laughs> 
All right. Well, let's go. Let's go from uh, the best to the worst. Worst performance, Zach. Worst performance in this movie is uh, I. I have to say Richard Dreyfus. As much as it pains me, here's the problem with Richard Dreyfus in this movie. He is Mr. Holland. Okay. I can't watch this movie and not think <laughs> Glenn Holland is a Republican from Kansas running for president. Uh, I mean, I, I don't really have anything against Richard Dreyfus per se. He was really great as Donald Rumsfeld in W. Um, it's just, come on, he's Mr. Holland. Like, I, you can't not see that. And then when he's, you know, when he's singing to himself, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I mean, what is this, like a 1920s movie? Is he, gonna, is he gonna twirl his mustache and tie a heroin to the train tracks? Like, come on, that's it, just, that's, yeah, it, it's, it's not a great performance. It's not his finest hour. By the way, he plays Dick Cheney in W. Not oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. They all kind of uh, mixed together at a certain point. Which, by the way, kind of made me want to cast Christian Bale as a uh, as Rumson in the remake, because they both played Dick Cheney, but I didn't. And he can't even try a little bit of a Kansas accent, not just a, a just a, just a tiny bit. Come on, but whatever. All right, Todd, who's your worst performance? Uh, it's Martin Sheen, for sure. I, I feel like he plays the exact same character in Catch Me If You Can, and it's in a completely different light. Like, I, I feel like it's a lazy performance, and he's bland, and he only has, like, a couple good line deliveries in a movie that's just, like, a punchline every other word. And I, I, I don't know, I've never liked... I've never liked Martin Sheen in it, and, yeah. I, he was the, kind of the default choice for me. Oh, I like Martin Sheen. I like him in this. Okay, um, so before I get to mine, Adam's pick for worst performance was the yeller at the end of the film. That's a that's, that's a cop that's, out pick. Yeah. Um, my uh, my pick for worst performance is uh, is David Paymer as Leon Kodak. I I feel like he just doesn't fit. Like he's this political strategist, but he's just kind of this mess. He's this slob. I, I guess it's not necessarily a bad performance. I think it's a bad character. Um, and all he's good for is just giving one-liners in in random scenes, and that's all he that's all he has. Like uh, I sure hope it's a no, because if not, we have to work on our people skills. I mean, th- th- there's no way that like this chief political strategist would be would be that just nonchalant and that much of a mess. He would he he's supposed to be this bulldog, and that's not what you get out of that performance at all. So that's my pick for worst performance terry i thought you were going to go with retro from apollo 13 who in this movie plays <laughs> gill the guy who complains about feminists taking away college football i was setting I totally that up for you. Rec- i totally noticed him too like hey 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 it's the guy who's, retro. who's not worried about if they die he's worried about how much time they have and the the typhoon <laughs> warning <laughs> there is a typhoon warning it's a slight chance only if our luck yeah, changes. only if only if their luck changes uh all right well uh how about uh the uh the honorary big tim category of favorite minor character um todd who do you have as your favorite minor character i have leo solomon played by the great john mahoney because i feel like every movie that he's in he's probably the coolest character whether it's tv or movies and he's got that he's got that great line he's like there's never an egg timer around when you need one I, I just wanted, like, two more scenes with him. He only has two scenes. He needed, like, two more. All right. All right. 
Uh, I am going with my favorite uh, minor character here is uh, Joshua Molina portraying David, the one of the uh, the guys in the uh, GDC that works with Sydney. Um, he's the one with the with the quippy line about uh, having lunch at the Kremlin. Um, and uh, I, I thought I, I really like him and he's he's kind of has this thing that that's going on with uh, with Sorkin because he was in a, he had a real small bit part in a few good men and that parlayed into this small part in the American president which then he translated into uh, one of the leads in um, Sorkin's first TV show sports night uh, and I which I remember watching and remember recognizing him in so um, he he's good he he's kind of like what David Paymer was supposed to be. I think this guy actually portrays in that tiny little role. And uh, he's recognizable. He's memorable in a small part. So I'm going with him as my favorite minor character. Zach, how about you? Okay, so I'm going to go with Anne Haney as Mrs. Chapel. Um, and the reason I'm going with that is because when I rewatched this movie and I saw her, I thought, oh, it's Mrs. Selner for Mrs. Doubtfire. And the fact that we have Mrs. Chapel played by the same woman who played Mrs. Selner in Mrs. Doubtfire, that's a lot of misses. And uh, yeah, that's all I got to say. I'm in, I'm intrigued by her character. I, like I just wanted to make that play, I like how she was basically playing the same character that she played in Liar Liar. I yeah, yeah, yeah she's, liar, that's quite liar. the demotion. Like yeah. <laughs> secretary for the president being the secretary for Fletcher Reed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she has the first name Mrs. She can't be in any other movie where her name is not Mrs. Well, her her character in Liar Liar's name is Greta. Oh. So, well, that dispels that theory. Jeez. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, Adam's favorite minor character was the lady at the flower shop. That's a good one. Yeah, that's that's not bad. Okay, uh, biggest stick man. Uh, my biggest stick man is uh, the aide at the bar played by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, that's talking with Michael J. Fox because you as as you're going along and you can see this this just this tiny little like ten second scene of Michael J. Fox talking to this guy at the bar, and one it's awesome that it's Aaron Sorkin, and two you totally get the like like this like almost like boiler room vibe from him of he's like this big hotshot uh guy that just in his suit sells him and he's able to uh to get whatever he wants um and uh yeah so he's he's my biggest stick man zach how about you okay not a lot of uh stick men in this movie unfortunately as evidenced by you giving it to a very minor <laughs> character with like no dialogue in it um but I, I don't know if I can really give a true stickman award. However, part of being a stickman is enabling um, the action to occur. And so with the spirit of that in mind, I would give it to uh, Martin Sheen as AJ because somehow he has this idea that 
he can arrange a prostitute to come to the White House if that is what the president is looking for. Like, I've always been intrigued by that idea. When, the, when, when Shepard says, I don't want a girl, AJ. Um, but AJ is open to the idea of, of bringing a hooker to the White House. I, I want to explore that more. I mean, maybe this is more a conspiracy theory than an actual stick man. But, you know, I, I want to know about those connections that AJ has. Like, that, that seems to indicate something about his personality that is maybe a little um, nefarious. And, and and sexual that that is an interesting uh interesting choice there todd how about you i went with lewis because he has just that natural amount of energy even without <clears throat> coffee he could probably talk his way in and out of girls pants if he wanted to because he's always just he's given 110 percent and you know he even said i um you know I, I I give the girl uh, the guidelines, and I do it with a greater amount of charm. You know, I, I he knows that he could. <laughs> I mean, he's going out to the bar randomly on a Friday night or whatever. Yeah, I, where he meets Aaron Sorkin, and they uh, yeah. I, yeah, I, I bet, maybe, I bet maybe, they're wingmen. Maybe they have a gangbang. I don't know. Oh wow. <laughs> well, I I think I, I'm gonna say just ahead of time. I think Adam's got us all beat on this one. Adam's biggest stick man is uh, Mrs. Chapel. Um, he, he, he said, he says she's been around the block and seen a thing or two and she knows more wood than just dogwood. <laughs> well, you can say that about David Paymer too, I guess. <laughs> That's true. Wow. That's true. Yeah. So he went there. Uh, like douchebag, Zach, what do you got? Well, I mean, there are definitely some good... Uh, douchebags um, in this movie but I think pretty much clearly the biggest douchebag has to be I'm just going to go for the low hanging fruit here Bob Brunson I mean this is a man who is you know I think loosely based on Bob Dole because Bob Dole was Clinton's challenger in 1996 and he also was from the state of Kansas and he also had the first name Bob and he was also a Republican uh, but Bob Rumson sticks to a new low, gets to a new low when he suggests that Sidney Ellen Wade is exchanging votes for sexual favors. I mean, what is this, 2020 when we're suggesting that? I mean, that's, that, that is a, that's, a, that's a new low for this Capra-esque world of idealistic politics envisioned by uh, Aaron Sorkin. So uh, he's, I think, pretty clearly the biggest douchebag in this movie. Well, you can make it a speechwriter. That's true, too, except I couldn't find his speechwriter's name in IMDb. Yeah. All right, Todd, how about you? I went with Terry's uh, favorite minor character, David at the GDC, because every word he says is, like, snarky. He's an asshole to everybody, and I think that he thinks that that makes him smart by being an asshole, but uh, I, I just think he's sort of like a fake intellectual. I, he's, I could see him just being the biggest douche in, in real life. I mean, he's a douche at work. He's probably a douche in real life. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so, uh, Adam says biggest douchebag is Bob Rumson. The one I had written down was Bob Rumson, but I'm going to go with somebody else just so I could say somebody else. And my, uh, first off, I, I, I would agree that, um, I mean, we're talking politics here, so you could find, you find douchebags all over the place. But uh, my biggest douchebag, I'm gonna go with uh, with Gil, brought to us by by Retro. Yeah, that's that's from a Apollo good pick. Team. That's um, a good. By pick. the way, his his name is Googie, Googie Gress is his actual name, which I find interesting. 
Uh, yeah, he's arguing about how Title IX is ruining college football. <laughs> I mean, how much more of a douche can you yeah, get? <laughs> that's a good pick. So, uh, so that's my that's my biggest douchebag. Um, who would Nicolas Cage play? Todd. Uh, so I was thinking like he would probably be some secret service agent. But his role would be expanded to being like almost the right hand confidant of the president. So he would basically take over AJ's role, but as a Secret Service agent, and it would turn into some action movie. <laughs> so it would turn to the the Fallen series, is what you're saying? Sort of, yeah. It, it would be like in the line of fire meets like I don't know that. Yeah, I guess this <laughs> something like that. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Nicholas Cage would uh, would play Benjamin Franklin Gates from National Treasure, and uh, find a way to get a meeting with the president in the Oval Office so he could steal something. <laughs> yeah, just it just be kind of a side, just a side scene of, of oh h- hello, Mr. President, and then uh, I'll, he'd walk out with something that you wouldn't realize he'd walk out with. That's a terrible pick because I don't think he really fits in this movie. He's like the least Sorkin actor ever. Yeah. <laughs> That's very, that's very true. Uh, Zach, who do you got? I have him as the French president, President Dostier. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, he he could pull off the accent and the disinterested look. Uh, Adam says Bob Rumson. By the way, that's who he says. It's too easy. Yeah, yeah. All right, flaws. Who's got some flaws they want to say? Uh, well, one very obvious flaw that I saw was when they're playing pool the first time, and Shepard completely almost whiffs the ball, and it just, like, dribbles, like, maybe, like, a foot. When, uh, AJ's walking around the table, somebody off-camera rolls the ball from the other side of the table, and it lands right where he took the shot the first time, and there's no way the ball had that much spin that it could have done that. It was just some bad editing, and I was like, what the hell happened there? I watched it twice, I was like, no. Um, wow, that's that. I de- I didn't notice very, that. I'm gonna have to specific. go back and watch that because no one else is in that room. It's just the two of them, so nobody yeah. actually could have. I don't know. Uh, another thing, I think the movie has way too many like Arrested Development type communication breakdown jokes. Like you can't do that. Who's gonna stop me? Actually, three Secret Service agents because yeah. that's my office. You know, like there, there's like that yeah, one every yeah. scene. It really kind of annoyed me this time. Uh, I also think that Rob Reiner uses thunder way too much to uh, heighten the emotion of his scenes. He did that in A Few Good Men, too, a lot, and uh, it's just super obvious. Uh, I also thought they should have had either zero Lucy scenes or more Lucy scenes, because like her like two scenes just uh, don't really like, make all that much sense to the, to the plot. They're just, like, tacked on, and, uh, you know, like, whether she's, like, playing some horrible trombone or, like, screwing up his plan about, like, his alibi for whatever. I don't know. It, it just it, it just doesn't seem like it fits all that much. But the worst flaw, I feel like, is his last um, his last speech because he, he goes from the scene before not being sure if he could, like, survive a, a campaign that's all about character and ethics to, like, challenging his opponent on national TV over just that. And it was, it's, like, all the checkpoints of being, like, a really epic scene but it was like a rant on around the horn or something like that. I feel like it was just, just like ridiculous. Like he's talking to middle schoolers and it was just 
incredibly cheesy this time, and usually that's like the one that's supposed to like swell up emotion, and I was just like rolling my eyes watching it. So I, I feel like that scene does not age well at all. It, it would definitely have uh, some punched up something like if it was remade today, especially by Sorkin. Yeah, I feel like that that scene is like the the like early draft, the early rough draft of the opening scene of the newsroom. Okay, yeah, I can see it. Like, like, like you want to talk about early Sorkin to like prime Sorkin? You you go Andrew Shepard and the American President to Jeff Daniels' character in the newsroom and those those monologues they have. Because I saw some very similar some very similar aspects to it, but yet being very different. Zach, did you have any flaws? Yeah, I, I wanted to echo what Todd said about the, the writing. Uh, you said Arrested Development, Todd. I said Zucker-like, like airplane and uh, like yeah. naked gun. Like when, when, he's, when uh, uh, she says, like, how does this work? Unbutton it, you know? Or like, um, I'm going to leave right now. Well, you can't, if you go out that door, that's going to be my private office. Like, yeah, way too many, like, play on, you know, like puns every scene, like that. Those, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, basically that defines their entire relationship. And it does feel a little bit like Leslie Nielsen in Naked Gun 33 and a third and... I, we we have enough of that, you know. Surely you can't be serious. Don't call me Shirley. I was halfway expecting to hear that line somewhere um, in the movie. Um, how does the president know that Sidney Allen Wade is single? I mean that that's never really explained in the movie. I know it's borderline harassment. Yeah, <laughs> what he was doing. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah. I clearly he's not calling anybody. You know, he gets the number of of her sister, but it's not like he's actually calling and trying to find out if she's single or not. Like that to me is a pretty gaping flaw in this movie. I mean, if you know, for a movie that is, I think, as obvious as this movie is, when we let's just throw in something there, like you know, I'm staying with my sister in Georgetown, and I've been, you know, I'm, I'm single, and I, I don't know, but it's just it's kind of odd um i can't help but look at that scene when they're eating dinner at the quote-unquote romantic georgetown bistro and all the cameras are taking pictures of them that is like the most obvious place to sit in that restaurant and the cameras are just like beaming in on them okay like if they want privacy there there's any number of options they could have but that scene is like so obvious and like ridiculous and then i think the biggest flaw i have in this movie is you know, the David Paymer character, uh, Kodak, is all about the polls. Apparently, this president starts out at 63% approval, that then lowers dramatically to 46%, and then by the end of the movie, it's 41%. 22% drop in approval rating, okay? That is insane. First of all, it's insane to have a president with a 63% approval rating. I mean, maybe back then it wasn't, but it's insane now. For it to drop 22% is ridiculous. And I like a month and yeah, exactly. Like what is the timeline of this movie? Like really, you're telling me that it dropped 22%. I mean, Trump has never been uh, outside of his five point kind of five percentage point like range. Like that is insane. Those are insane numbers. And if it really did drop by 22% in an election year, like there's no way that his staffers would have been okay with him continuing to date Sidney Ellen Wade. Like if they're going to blame that, that that's the reason why his numbers have dropped so, so drastically, they would have done something, either address it more specifically or something. But to just leave it at 22% drop is, is really ridiculous and even unlikely for 1995. I mean, I realize that we're probably more absorbed with numbers today than we were back then, but that's just, I, I couldn't help but think that's, that's just insane and unrealistic. 
Well, and I, I was thinking about it. The whole the whole crux of his uh, of of this is that you know him dating Sidney Ellen Wade opens him up for a character debate that he was not able to be a part of the first time around because he was this uh, this fresh widower. Who runs for president less than a year after his wife dies? I mean that that makes yeah. him out to be like some some cold hearted politician, which is obviously not what Andrew Shepard is. Um, so that the, I you could say that that kind of doesn't fit into his character that much. Yeah, and and would his really would his his poll like if you're telling me that his polling would drop that much, that would mean that everyone in America would hate Sidney Ellen Wade. Like for it to drop twenty two percent would mean that she is like the most despised person in the United States. Like we're talking like Hitler level of of of, of being despised. And I I just I don't know if I see it. I would think that most Americans in 1995 would want President Shepard to be dating someone else and and, and moving on. But, but then again, have you have though, we... I mean, it's a little. I don't know. He didn't meet anyone off it, like uh, organically. Could I don't know? Could rub the people the wrong way, I guess. Also, have you ever seen a president or any political person? have this kind of story being talked about constantly about them and for a couple months there it's no comment i mean you that that's that's unheard of too well that's just the fl- refusing that's the flaw to in the movie it. they they should have acknowledged it like if you're if your polling is dropping that precipitously you you have to do something about it you can't just let it sit there yeah yeah. But his best friend is his chief of staff. He won't even call him by his first name when they're playing pool. Like, he's not going to challenge what he says. He's just going to go with whatever the president says. Like, if he doesn't want to talk about it, he's not going to make him talk about it. Yep. All How right. old are they supposed to be? I was doing the math. Okay, he said, it's in 25 years, you've never had your name on a ballot. And Michael Douglas and Martin Sheen were 51 and 55. So they were in their 20s when they first got into, like, major politics. There's no way. Like, there's there's some serious issues in timeline there. That feels like a Terry criticism. <laughs> or a Bill Simmons criticism. Because <laughs> uh... they've got to be, they're supposed to be at least, like, you know... 60 they're probably supposed to be around 60 right rumson's supposed to be probably 68 but they weren't they were all in their like early 50s all three yeah. of them yeah i thought i thought richard dreyfus looked a lot older in this than he actually was like he looked like end of the movie mr holland yeah he never this. took off his makeup he just walked on <laughs> uh all right. Well, uh, well, shall we uh, shall we get into our, our final categories here? Oh, um, uh, Adam had a couple gripes that he wanted to say. Uh, first off, the one Oscar nomination is a crime. We already talked about that. Um, uh, when Sydney, oh, this is a good one. When Sydney first came to the White House, she clearly says this was her first time. Later, she says she was on a guided tour years ago. Yeah, I noticed Ooh. that too. Ah. Makes her a liar. It's pretty good. By the way, Todd, I thought one of your questions might have been uh, what two uh, what two pieces of China, what two presidents China did she compare? Uh, yeah, I don't even remember that one. It was 
I, one of them was Van Buren. Van Buren China to the... Oh, I forget who the other one was. One of them was Van Buren, I know that. Anyways. LVP MVP. Todd, who are you saying? My LVP is the cashier at Carmen's House of Flowers. Because when a president has that distinct of a voice... I mean, who honestly is prank calling a small business... I mean, come on. Like, you're not going to hang up on somebody who says they're the president and insists. And she, I mean, and when he she actually sees him, she can't even talk. She just, like, falls over with the phone in her hand. And it's like a cord phone. That could be really dangerous, too. It's, it's a bad situation. She's my only <laughs> <LVP. laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Zach, how about you? All right, my LVP for this movie is Lucy Shepard's social studies teacher, Mr. Linder, because I think it takes a lot of cojones to tell the president of the United States that um, his daughter's not doing well in social studies class. But if you listen to the reasons why she's not doing well, it's because she doesn't raise her hand and she's not enthusiastic what kind of garbage is that as a teacher? Like, she needs to be enthusiastic about social studies. Like, give me a break. That is not on her, man. That is on you, especially for someone that is as adept at and passionate at playing trombone. If she can be that excited about playing trombone, she should be excited about the American Constitution. And that is on you, Mr. Linder. Pathetic excuse for a social studies teacher bitching to the president about his daughter's ineptitude in his class or what he considers ineptitude. He was taking his job very seriously, Zach. It was a parent-teacher conference. The, the parent She's is not one enthusiastic. of the key players in the... <laughs> Come on. Enthusiasm? That's going to be what we, what we, how we assess our children? All right. My, that's a good pick. My, uh, my LVP... That was a good pick. My LVP um, is part LVP, part, uh, part underappreciated. Um, and that is... Uh, President Shepard's uh, press secretary, Robin McCall, Robin McCall, played by Anna Devere Smith, because she's the one that has to go in front of the press court every day and field the questions about uh, about Sydney and ignore the answers to them. And um, but yet she is the one that calls him out for being a widower at the very beginning of the movie, too, just for like offhand and then like feels like she's going to get fired for it, too. But at the but same then again, time, he does insult her. He calls her too tall McCall when he first yeah. sees her. That's true. <laughs> it, 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 you kind of get this idea that he has this very um, informal relationship with a lot of his staffers, and then, which led to her offhand comment, and then she felt bad about it. But also, I mean, as press secretary, she is the one that should not have let this situation go on as long as it did without him making a statement, because she's the one that sees what the press is doing to him on like firsthand so something should have something should have happened there so that's my lvp and i'm guessing she's press secretary because she's the one that's always seen at the podium i don't know if she actually is but she's someone that's always addressing the media so we'll go with that okay mvp zach or todd who who is for it? todd you go first uh, I, I guess I'll go with Michael Douglas, because I feel like, especially at that time, that was right in his lane. He he just oozes wa watchability, and he just brings this level of importance just by w looking at him. He did that a lot in that time, whether it was Wall Street or A Perfect Murder or whatever. He just, like, has that sophistication about him, even the game, even. And um, 
I, I the movie wouldn't have been that. I I don't feel like he would have been that. It wouldn't have been that effective if he wasn't in the lead role. At that time, I don't know who I would have actually chosen. I, he probably was pretty irreplaceable. That's why he was my highest war, Todd. Yeah, but Michael J. Fox still was better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach, who's your MVP? My MVP from this movie is very clearly the president, actual president at the time, William Jefferson Clinton, 42nd president of the United States, because I feel like this movie is very, very clearly modeled on his life. Now, obviously, President Clinton was not from Wisconsin like Andrew Shepard was, but he also had a daughter, and his daughter played trombone, he played saxophone, and just like Sidney Ellen Wade is pushing this environmental protection bill through his White House and he feels kind of uh, you know compromised a little bit about it ethically, I feel like this movie was also very much making a comment about Hillary Clinton's push to push uh, Medic- Medicare expansion and healthcare overhaul through the Senate and the House of Representatives back in 1993, which failed and actually stunted Clinton's uh, approval ratings very much. So I feel like without Bill Clinton, this movie really doesn't get made. And I also feel like because Bill Clinton was president, people were okay with this movie being made because they could accept a president who was morally honest and and a decent person. And this was very pre-Monica Lewinsky. I don't know. This is just a long way of saying uh, Bill Clinton, you know, um, prior to 1990, whatever, good president. Prior to ever meeting Monica Lewinsky. Well, honestly, at this time, he may have already met her and been in the middle Probably. of everything. So, <laughs> He was certainly the inspiration for this movie, though, in, in many ways. I, I would agree, and I mentioned that before, that I think I think it's pretty obvious that Andrew Shepard has, has some of that uh, charisma that Bill Clinton has. Um, and then you definitely, he's definitely based on that. Um, by the way, before I get uh, give mine, uh, Adam's LVP was Richard Dreyfus. He didn't think he was very good in this. And his MVP is Aaron Sorkin, which I think is kind of an easy answer because, I mean, you can tell it's this Sorkin script. And I, like I said before, I think there's a pretty obvious comparison that this is a, this can be looked as a, at a, as a companion piece with a few good men as the two collaborations between Rob Reiner and Aaron Sorkin. Uh, they have very similar vibes. Um, and, uh, and definitely um, definitely would be a good double feature. Uh, my, but uh, so I, I guess I'd say the, the partnership between Reiner and Sorkin, but my, my low-key MVP is Mark Scheiman for uh, being the Oscar-nominated um, composer of this film for actually getting the film an Oscar nomination. So there you go. All right. <laughs> Okay, well, let's wrap this up. Quote of the day time. Uh, Zach, back at the beginning, you won trivia, so I'll let you go first. Okay, well, uh, my quote from, comes from Dr. Strangelove because I was prepared to go with Merkin Muffley as my favorite president until Todd stole him from me. I mean, uh, him or Walter Houston, you know, I think it's still kind of no contest. And uh, President Mer- Merkin Muffley says, I will not go down in history as the greatest mass murderer since Adolf Hitler. To which Buck Turgidson, played memorably by George C. Scott, responds, Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in the history books. <laughs> Beautiful. Great line. Uh, Todd, what do you got? 
Okay, so AJ has a line that I feel like it just applies really well today. It needs no explanation. He says, The American people have a funny way of deciding what, on their own, what is and is not their business. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's a good line. That is a good line. I, I was trying to pick between a few different lines. Um, I was also thinking of maybe going with a line from President Ashton from Vantage Point, but I couldn't find a good one. Uh, <laughs> um, the the line I had written down was um, was when uh, Andrew Shepard's watching TV and he's watching Bob Rumson and he goes, My name is Bob Rumson and I'm running for president. Sure glad he cleared that up because that crowd was about to buy some Amway products. I, I, th- I thought that that was a pretty good one, but but I think my favorite line in it is um, is AJ when he says, um, "You don't fight the fights you can win; you fight the fights that need fighting." I, I think that that's an awesome line too. So uh, so yeah. Um, all right, with that, happy twenty fifth to uh, to the American president. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back at you. Happy seventy fifth to us. Yes, happy 75th episode. <laughs> Not anniversary, but episode. <laughs> I was going to say, what, what are you talking... Jordan Peele's movie just came out last year. Well, it's not 75 years old, Todd. <laughs> oh, man. Yes. Uh, <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, we'll that be back at That was an Aaron you. Sorkin line. It was, it was. From this movie. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back at you next week. Catch you next time. Catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.